Welcome to Truthfinder, where we seek crucial answers to critical questions about belief. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. I'm your host, Dr. Elijah Sadafel, and welcome to Truthfinder, the podcast, where we search for crucial answers to critical questions about belief, non-belief, and everything in between. This is Truthfinder episode number four, where we'll be searching for clarity and meaningful answers to the critical question, why is there life instead of things? This episode will be split into three different parts, and in this part, part number one, we'll be looking into the issue of fine-tuning in order to discern if the universe has been fine-tuned for life. So let's get started. So the universe not only exists, but is also called the cosmos, which comes from a Greek word meaning order. We, as conscious and highly ordered individuals, can only acknowledge the order in the universe because the order of the universe is unavoidable. Hence, it takes order to either appreciate it or to deny it. Life is the highest expression of order, and it is very complicated. And things that are complicated warrant a special explanation. We desire to know why they are complicated and how they came to be the way they are. This is a driving force in the pursuit of understanding and animates countless people to redefine the contours of human knowledge. Life, even the seemingly simple forms of life like single-cell bacteria, is not only astronomically intricate, but is also very rare. Life therefore deserves a very special explanation. In this episode, as I shall argue, I will explain why there is life instead of things. That is, I will clarify why external variables that are conducive to life exist in the first place. Here, my primary concern is a broad lens that takes a look at the cosmos and the laws that govern it in order to find an explanation. In the next episode, Truthfinder 5, I will narrow my focus to consider how life originates by taking a closer look at the presupposed internal mechanism of the development of intelligent life, the theory of Darwinian evolution by natural selection. Many of the concepts and ideas in this episode will lean on the intellectual capital of the last episode, number three, why is there something rather than nothing? When we look into the grand cosmos, there is a temptation to think that the universe has been meticulously planned and carefully thought out. Yet experience tells us that acting on temptation can get us into trouble. Still, an unavoidable conclusion is that the Earth is a very unique and extraordinarily rare place. An enormous amount of observational data suggests the Earth happens to be in the right place at the right time under the right set of conditions. The question then becomes why? In the grand, unfriendly ocean that is the cosmos, why are there conditions that are amicable to life on the oasis that is Earth? Is it because we just happen to get lucky? Is it because the universe was fine-tuned for intelligent life from the start? Is it because being special is an illusion and that the principle of mediocrity, that there is absolutely nothing special about our situation, holds true? Are any of these claims far-fetched and audacious? Are any of these claims supported by empirical evidence? Additionally, when we consider whether the universe shows signs of architectural planning, the immediate questions that beg to be asked are, who is the architect, and what are they like? After all, theoretically speaking, any possible universe could be built. The real question is how good of an architect we have. 
Figuratively speaking, a virtuoso could construct a universe that is a masterpiece, and a child could quote-unquote design a universe that is a haphazard mess. Does the architect have actual fingers, or are they an immaterial abstract something that prefers order, an idea that Einstein famously favored? Whatever a person's beliefs are, it is a fact that exactness was needed to set the universe in motion, and the universe by itself is a highly unlikely phenomenon. And it is indeed strange that an improbable universe permits human beings who are so concerned with what is plausible. Let us return to our central question, why is there life instead of things? There are divergent answers on the matter, so on the one hand, as Richard Dawkins once said, quote, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, end quote. On the other hand, as Alison McGrath has written, quote, is it a pure coincidence that the laws of nature are such that life is possible? Might this not be an important clue to the nature and destiny of humanity, end quote. Let us begin searching for some meaningful answers. The first thing we will talk about is fine-tuning. There is a buzzword that scientists use to describe the extremely precise and narrow balancing of the initial conditions of the universe and the basic laws of the cosmos that make life possible. That word is fine-tuning. Fine-tuning refers to the constants of nature and the laws of nature. By constants, I am referring to things like the cosmological constant to be discussed later. By laws, I am referring to quantities like the force of gravity, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and the electromagnetic force. Generally speaking, there are more than 30 natural laws and cosmological factors that require fine-tuning in order to bring about and to maintain a universe that is amicable to life. Because of fine-tuning, we live on a planet that is favorable to life because conditions set by these parameters are life-permitting. Indeed, the laws and constants of nature exist everywhere in the universe, but variables interact in a unique way to permit life on Earth. This is why, for example, as far as we know, another civilization does not live on Mercury. So to make fine-tuning crystal clear, let's look at gravity. If the gravitational constant were not fine-tuned to its current value, this would make life on Earth impossible. Why? Because of gravity in general, the Earth is a specific size which retains our atmosphere, filters out harmful radiation from space, and moderates our climate by interaction with the oceans. A higher gravitational constant would yield a stronger gravitational force that would crush us. It would also yield a planet a fraction of the size that would be unsuitable to support an ecosystem, making life impossible. A weaker gravitational constant would yield a weaker gravitational force, and we would float away into space. Also, stars and planets could not form, so we would have no place to live. Notably, if the gravitational constant changed by one part in 10 to the 40th power, that's one with 40 zeros in front of it and then a decimal point. If the gravitational constant were changed by that fraction of an amount, then the sun could not exist and the moon would either crash into our planet or float away into space. What is clear is that the laws of nature do not establish the value of their constants. The values just simply are. So, the law of gravity exists, 
and the value of the constant of gravity is a specific number represented by the capital letter G. G could be a completely different value yielding a completely different world. This, of course, begs the question as to where the values of the laws of nature come from, a concern that was addressed in the last episode in analyzing the fallacious idea that the universe came from nothing. In the end, we will always be left with the question of why the laws of nature are the way they are, and there really is no way around that. As another example of fine-tuning, if the value of the weak nuclear force were changed by one part in 10 to the 100th power, life could not exist because elements could not form. As another example, the strong nuclear force holds protons and neutrons together and therefore governs atomic structure. A less than 1% change in the strong force would prevent the fusion of helium atoms and stars, which would inhibit carbon and oxygen production, which would inhibit life. If the strong force were lowered, there wouldn't be enough strength to keep what we are made out of together. And still another example, and perhaps the most breathtaking example of fine-tuning, is the cosmological constant, which measures how dense energy is in the vacuum of space. Basically, if this number is too big, planets like Earth couldn't form. If this number had a high negative value, the universe would recollapse, just as it was trying to stretch its legs for the first time. So, according to Nobel-winning physicist Steven Weinberg, the cosmological constant is, quote, remarkably well-adjusted in our favor, end quote. Furthermore, according to Dr. Robin Collins, the cosmological constant is, quote, widely regarded as the single greatest problem facing physics and cosmology today, end quote. Now, why does Collins say this? Because the fine-tuning in the cosmological constant involves a degree of precision to one part in a hundred trillion, 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 trillion. That's one part in 10 to the 120th power. So the cosmological constant demands such precision that Collins equates fine-tuning to this exact degree, like randomly throwing a dart across the infinite blackness of space and hitting a target one trillionth of one trillionth of an inch wide. That target is smaller than a single atom. In other words, so small it's invisible to the naked eye. So, parameters like the cosmological constant are astronomically improbable to exist in the precise combination that they do with other constants, making our universe deeply and shockingly unlikely. Astronomer and physicist Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez says it plainly and clearly. He writes, quote, we found that our location in the universe, in our galaxy, in our solar system, as well as such things as the size and rotation of Earth, the mass of the moon and the sun and so forth, a whole range of factors, conspire together in an amazing way to make Earth a habitable planet. End quote. The statement by Dr. Gonzalez is crucial because it points to the fact that there is life instead of things because life is actually dependent on fine-tuning and, based on what we know about advanced life, life would not have arose in the absence of fine-tuning. That is, the material content of our universe and the forces that interact in the cosmos are prerequisites for the life-friendly cosmic habitat in which we live. In fact, there exists a sense of double fine-tuning in that the universe follows certain fundamental laws, and those laws cooperate with many other variables in one location, Earth, to permit life. 
Furthermore, our universe in general is life-prohibiting, and a life-sustaining planet cannot exist anywhere it wants to. It must exist in what's called a galactic habitable zone, where a planet can provide liquid water on its surface, in addition to a long-term habitat for oxygen-requiring animal life. Even more, a planet must also exist in what's called a Goldilocks zone around a star, like our sun. Basically, if a planet is too close to a star, it gets too hot, water evaporates, and life cannot exist. If a star is too far away, it gets too cold, and water and carbon freeze, making life impossible. The Earth obviously lies within this Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, and it never wanders out of the zone. The point being made here is that it is unreasonable to assume that on a small speck somewhere out there lives an advanced race of super smart aliens. Why? Because for the most part, out there will kill you, and because you would obviously need proof. The universe is not all the same, and life demands very specific requirements without which it would not be possible. Medically speaking, for example, our bodies are roughly 60% water. Why is that? Because the processes of life require a solvent, and water is the perfect solvent to facilitate this. Moreover, carbon forms the backbone of life because it forms the core of DNA, the code that programs life. Having either water or carbon alone is insufficient for life because what life needs are both of these things in the proper amounts and in the proper forms. Not to mention, the human body requires 25 essential elements to work properly. The majority of these elements are carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, and nitrogen. We breathe in oxygen to keep us alive. Atmospheric oxygen is fine-tuned at 21%, so if oxygen levels were lower, you would die of suffocation. If levels were higher, you would die from oxygen toxicity. The sugar that keeps your brain working is a molecule made up of carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen. How water and carbon interact to facilitate life are well-established principles of organic chemistry. So I mentioned all the preceding facts to make the point that postulating different forms of life based upon different building blocks of life will not only violate what we know about life, but also violates chemical principles that prove water and carbon are the ideal building blocks for life. So, when it comes to considering alternative pockets of life in our universe, it is clear that Earth has a monopoly on the conditions that permit life. Of course, we could theoretically consider life forms that exist under conditions that are hostile to us, in the same way that we could consider unicorns that live on a magical isle in the middle of the sea. We happen to exist in our universe, in our world, the only one that we have real evidence for. On top of all the fine-tuned variables discussed thus far, Consider this list of quantifiable characteristics of the cosmos that must fall within narrow ranges to permit the existence of life. All of these further validate Earth's monopoly on life-permitting conditions. The electromagnetic force constant. If this were slightly stronger or weaker, life would not be possible for a multitude of reasons. The ratio of neutron to proton mass, the strong nuclear force, mass density of the universe, dark energy density of the universe, ratio of space energy density to mass density, entropy level of the universe, 
velocity of light, age of the universe, average distance between galaxies, average distance between stars, density of giant galaxies during early cosmic history, and the strength of the initial Big Bang explosion. Had this value differed in strength by as little as one part in 10 to the 60th power, the universe would collapse on itself or went bang too fast for stars to form. Both cases mean that life would be impossible. Consider also there are some astronomical peculiarities that permit life on Earth. For example, Jupiter acts as a comet shield by deflecting comets en route to impact Earth, and Jupiter's gravitational field has been called a cosmic vacuum cleaner. Mars and Venus act as asteroid shields. The Sun is a special type of star, which is very stable, is the right size, and emits the right color as red and blue to permit life on Earth. As far as stars go, a vast majority would be unsuitable to serve as a sun in our solar system. The moon is what makes our seasons possible because it helps to stabilize our planet in its orbit by stabilizing our axis of rotation. If we did not have a moon, our planet's tilt would be much more dramatic, making our summers unbearably hot and our winters unbearably cold. The moon also regulates our tides, which help in temperature regulation. Also, the fact that we have a moon as big as it is relative to the size of our planet is also a fact which is highly uncommon in the universe. So what's the crux of the matter? What can we take home from all of these facts about fine-tuning? And that brings us to the anthropic principle. Back in the 1960s, the Princeton physicist Robert Dickey made the observation that the universe was incapable of permitting life if any one of a myriad of physical constants differed in value by even a small amount. This observation led to the development of the anthropic principle or the idea that the universe was fine-tuned for human life to exist. The mathematician Brandon Carter coined the term anthropic principle in the 1970s. The multitude of fine-tuned variables already discussed testifies to this principle. The basic idea behind the anthropic principle is that the universe from the very start was fine-tuned for life in general and for advanced intelligent life in particular. So, in order for us to be alive today, an extremely restrictive set of demands were necessary at the genesis of the cosmos. Back in the 1960s, astronomers could identify just a few solar system characteristics that required fine-tuning for human life to be possible. With the increase of scientific knowledge, by the end of 2001, astronomers had identified more than 150 finely-tuned characteristics. And, at least according to astronomer Dr. Hugh Ross, more than 900 characteristics of the Milky Way galaxy are required for advanced life to be possible. So it's clear here that science has actually opened a huge gap of knowledge in attempting to explain fine-tuning because the more we know, the more aware of fine-tuning we have become. In the 1960s, the odds that any given planet in the universe would possess the necessary conditions to support intelligent physical life were shown to be less than 1 in 10,000. In 2001, those odds shrank to less than 1 in a number so large that the odds are essentially zero and thus functionally impossible. 
As far as we know, the Earth is a solitary oasis of life in a cold, dark, hostile-to-life universe. There are countless more ways to be a dead world than a live one. The anthropic principle is intriguing because it relies on empirical observations that tend to suggest that the universe was built for humanity, but I will address this issue later on. Of all the fine-tuned parameters, most can only vary by about 1% before bad stuff begins to happen. Hence, these variables demand that even in a universe with 50 billion trillion planets, the odds of having just one planet with conditions suitable for life are essentially functionally impossible. Just fine-tuning the weak nuclear force correctly, for example, is analogous to standing on Pluto with a blindfold, firing a gun at Earth, and expecting to hit the eye on the face of a dime sitting atop the Empire State Building. Now try and repeat that dozens and dozens of times for other variables. Good luck. The easiest way to make all of this information about fine-tuning concrete is to imagine our world shrunk down to the size of a sphere that fills a concert hall. Next, imagine that our concert hall-sized Earth is enclosed in a transparent sphere and the conditions inside our life sphere are set by hundreds of dials on a control panel at the base. One dial is for gravity, one is for oxygen, one is for electromagnetism, etc. Each dial is huge and has an enormous number of possible settings which represent the total range of values for each constant. This means that an astronomical number of combinations exist when we consider all the different settings of all the different dials. With fine-tuning, life is permitted and all is well inside the sphere. Yet if a monkey came into the hall and began monkeying with the dials by moving any one of them ever so slightly, even so small that to the naked eye the dial doesn't even move, what the monkey will discover is that the impact on life inside the sphere would be catastrophic. Why? because the monkey would drastically change the values that underlie the fundamental properties of our universe. The point here is that a very sensitive, very precise set of conditions that are balanced on the edge of a razor are needed in order to create a universe that is life-permitting. And fine-tuning not only involves having certain parameters, like the dial, but then turning the dial to a very, very specific setting. Any small, minuscule deviation from this delicate balance results in a universe that is life-prohibiting and everything inside our hypothetical life sphere would die. Now let's continue the analogy. Let's say you were an unsuspecting observer and happened to walk into the room where a life sphere was. Let's say you examined all the dials and looked at all the life teeming inside of the sphere. It would be reasonable to conclude the dials were fine-tuned or set to where they are now. This highlights an important point, that discoverability goes hand in hand with a life-permitting universe. That is, not only do we live in a universe that is fine-tuned for our existence, but that same fine-tuning allows us to discover and then measure all those things that are in fact fine-tuned. It's almost as if fine-tuning wants to be discovered so that all of its hard work can be appreciated. 
We could, for example, live in a world where the atmosphere was a thick black cloud, where we had no arms or legs, and we survived by being fed a constant stream of nutrients through an umbilical cord that was attached to a massive oak tree. In this world, we couldn't see around us, we couldn't see the tree that we are connected to, nor could we ever begin to investigate the tree that sustains life. We do live in a world where we have eyes, so we can look into a microscope and see what's inside cells, or look into a telescope to see what's in space. We can then analyze what we see, process the information with our oxygen-nourished and sugar-fueled brains, and then objectively quantify the fine-tuning. Even more, the fine-tuning in nature and the cosmos is not discoverable by everyone. Nature is clever enough so that only the finest human minds can unlock and decode all the fine-tuning in the universe and then dazzle the rest of us with their findings. This doesn't suggest that our earthly habitat is the best, nor does it suggest that other habitats could not be discovered. Rather, with fine-tuning, we can observe a favorable balance of competing conditions so that the architecture of the cosmos can still have life-threatening asteroids, but also have life-preserving asteroid shields like Venus. The universe could have been devoid of asteroids altogether, but our universe has them, along with a means to protect life on Earth against them. The point here is that the Earth is special because of the mere fact that Earth is life-permitting, while the rest of the known universe is not. In many respects, the Earth is the anomaly that draws attention to itself. If I ever meet little green men from far, far away, then I will have sufficient reason to change my mind. Consider the words of the late NASA scientist John O'Keefe. He said, quote, We are, by astronomical standards, a pampered, cosseted, cherished group of creatures. Our Darwinian claim to have done it all ourselves is as ridiculous and as charming as a baby's brave efforts to stand on its own two feet and refuse his mother's hand. If the universe had not been made with the most exacting precision, we could never have come into existence. It is my view that these circumstances indicate the universe was created for man to live in. End quote. In his book, Nature's Destiny, Michael J. Denton even makes the bold claim that every piece of our observable reality exists to create a livable habitat for humankind. So, the answer to this episode's central question, why is there life instead of things, is answered by fine-tuning. That is, life exists because a multitude of parameters in the universe are fine-tuned, and these variables conspire to permit life. The question now becomes why is the universe fine-tuned and what explains fine-tuning? This will be the focus of parts number two and three. The listening audience must be aware that the fact of fine-tuning is highly objective and relies on a logical assessment of the cumulative facts. The explanation for fine-tuning ultimately dabbles into a subjective analysis that is animated by ideology. So, I hope everyone joins me next week, where we'll take a look at five different explanations for why there is life instead of things by looking at five explanations for fine-tuning. Until then, see you next time. 
For more valuable content, visit truthfinder.org.